and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I am not joined by Taylor Rockwell today because he's fully 3,000 miles away in Seattle for MLS Cup. But don't worry, I have two great guests that I've chatted with and two great conversations to share with you, I promise. Before I introduce my guests, I'm very excited to let you know slash remind you that the second season of our spin-off show, Soccer 101, is underway. Episode 1 published last night, in which Taylor and I collaborate and then argue and then compromise to create our all-time US Men's National Team 11. If that sounds good to you, then please either A, go refresh your Soccer 101 feed, or B, Go subscribe to Soccer 101 and start listening. A lot of time and a lot of love has gone into every episode of Soccer 101, so I can confidently say it's some of our very best work. But back to today. My first guest is Jeff Kasouf of The Equalizer. Jeff and I spoke early this morning, just a few short, cold hours after Vladko Andonovsky's debut as US Women's National Team head coach, which was a 3-2 win over Sweden. Jeff and I talked about what's changed and what stayed the same under the new head coach. I'd call it evolution, not revolution. And we also looked ahead to what the future holds for the World Cup winning team. Later in the show, I talked to Bobby Warshaw to get his preview of MLS Cup. Lots of good tactical talk and insight in that conversation, mostly from Bobby, to help you get prepped or pumped or both for Sunday's game. We also semi-accidentally veer off into talking US men's national team and the Bearhalter era, so stick around to the end for that part of the conversation. But first, here's me and Jeff Kasouf talking Vlatko and the US women's national team. Jeff, good morning to you in Columbus. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Just warming up still from last night. Yeah, it looked, it looked pretty cold at the game, but the goals were flowing. They were hot, hot goals. Um, USA 3, <laughs> Sweden 2 on Vlatko's debut. Um, my, my first big question is, um, what were the differences you saw watching a Vlatko US Women's National Team versus a Gilelis US Women's National Team? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was a huge change in in style and system, um, but but certainly we saw some of kind of the nuances that um, I, I think that we've come to know Vlako Anonovsky for in, in the NWSL and kind of what we expected that he might do. So, um, you know, that that four one four one sort of setup that they were in defensively, um, you know, we saw it to some degree um, with Jill Ellis, who I think was um, you know very willing to kind of rotate systems and, and change shape even within games. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't sort of her predominant formation. I think certainly um, that 4-3-3, which uh, really put a lot of, of pressure on those three central midfielders to, to cover a lot of ground yeah. um, was kind of her staple. And um, with Vlako last night, you know, obviously only one game, but that 4-1-4-1 sort of set up defensively, uh, I think gave some some nice cover to that, that uh, midfield. And, um, you know, it, it looked really, you know, tight and sound. Obviously they had that four-minute stretch where they kind of gave up. Uh, it, it was a little bit fluky, those um, those two goals, like they kind of shut down for a few minutes there, but yeah, they were um, both, I thought it looked good overall. Both of the Sweden goals were somewhat freak occurrences, right? I saw on the first goal, I think Sauerbrunn and Haran both went sort of running out to close down the same person um, mm-hmm. and left the eventual goal scorer wide open. And then obviously there was the miscommunication between uh, Sauerbrunn and Nea. But apart from that, I thought sitting in the four one four one, there was 
almost no space for Sweden to to play into. And I don't think I ever saw that with the Gilelis team because I thought Gilelis teams would often more often like be happier to go higher and go chase the ball a little more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this is um, th- this team had, I'd say over the past year, year and a half had really sort of formed an identity that, um, you know, look, they have quality defenders at the back, but their their MO really had become, if, if we have to, we're going to outscore you because we have the best front three in the world and we can go score four goals or, or maybe 13, depending on you know, <laughs> who the opponent is. Um, so I think that that had really developed. And, and look, there, there was some sacrificing of the you know of some defensive responsibilities and there were some sacrifices to be made in that system so um i, I think in that sense uh vlako Anonovsky being known for kind of his defensive shape his teams having defensive discipline um i think you know there, there's kind of we're seeing immediate uh immediate dividends there yeah with like tobin heath defensive headers in central midfield <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that starting counters me. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how about with the ball? Um, I so I obviously you're more familiar with the team than I am. I would say there seemed more of a determination to uh, pass the ball from the back and not go so direct. I think I think I'd argue that Gillespie's teams were more direct and almost like blunt force. Like sometimes we'll just power the ball forward and then we'll overpower you. Whereas it seemed more pass, 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 pass. Um, under Vlatko, am I am I sort of overemphasizing that, or was, or was that was that actually happening? No, I think it was happening. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think certainly Jill Ellis's teams, um, you know, more direct. I think that they did develop through that last sort of phase of, of her tenure, um, an ability to play more through you know on the ground, um, but certainly um, w- was still and and look, they had the pieces to do it with with Alex Morgan, with Megan Rapino, um, even trying to sort of find and isolate Tobin Heath on a flank. So um, you know, I think we did see more playing through the actual sort of central channels um last night you saw sort of uh as you said i mean playing out of the back you find julie Ertz. there was a combination there in the second half where uh Ertz and lloyd who had checked down um had, had combined for a one two and then it got sprayed wide so i think you do see some more or i, I guess just say through one game you see you know more playing through that central midfield and i think too it's probably worth pointing out like i think tactically all of these things are are there they were there and, and they're sort of what we expect from Andonovsky. Um but also I think there is kind of that first game bump that you get with any manager where you're obviously sort of playing for your job to a degree you know kind of a new tryout and, and everybody's happy now which is uh, as we know not always the case on teams so um, I think that there's a little bit of that that first game bump of a, a new manager. So what are, what are the potential future sources of unhappiness? Mm. Yeah, a very good question. I mean, look, I think I think the most fascinating thing here is going to be that um, Vlatko is, I would say, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say universally praised. I, I've never heard a, a, a bad word spoken about him by a player, a coach, um, you know, so I, I think that you go from that where everybody's happy and now obviously um, he doesn't have to make immediate decisions, which I think is good for, for him in terms of, you know, not having to cut anybody. I mean, Olympics are still, you know, eight months away. So I, I think that those sources are going to be, look, there's, there's got to be some turnover. Um, I think that, you know, the question at fullback where Kelly O'Hara has been hurt a lot, uh, Crystal Dunn, who, who's hurt now from the NWSL championship, you know, is she your, 
is she a fullback for you? I mean, obviously different coaches view her very different ways and she's performed well in, in, in all of those roles. So I think fullback and then, you know, look, the number nine position. Yeah, I think last night was a really important night for, for Carly Lloyd. Um, she spoke, you know, at the end of that Jill Ellis tenure about not feeling like she got a fair shake at at a starting role and feeling like she was training well and, and not necessarily seeing the minutes. So, um, you know, going out there, getting the nod, obviously in the, in the nine role, Alex, Alex Morgan, not, uh, in the team right now with, uh, expecting her first child in April. So, um, you know, a, a really strong performance from Lloyd, who I think was very good at the end of the NWSL season. Um, and, and I think that's where, uh, you know, that's that's one of the biggest questions, I'd say, is is needing a number nine. Is it her? Is it her for 90 minutes? Um, and who else does does he potentially try there? And I think that's going to be uh, a big focal point because I think you have your answers in, in midfield for the most part. Um, I think you mostly have your answers at center back goalkeeper. Um, so so who's number nine, particularly in this phase where, you know, Alex is not with the team and you know, coming back into the team is going to be a challenge. Nobody's really going to know what that's going to look like until May. So um, I think that's a big question coming into going into Tokyo. Yeah, I think if you, my conception of Carly Lloyd as a 37-year-old former central midfielder turned forward was much less mobile than the player that I saw last night. She was all over the place, like running into channels to be available, dropping back into midfield to connect play making runs off the shoulders of defenders. I think even late, late into the game, she was sort of um, beating players, I think beating players to what was sort of 40, 60 balls not in, not in her favour. If you told me this was a, a 25-year-old, like sort of up-and-coming striker based on that performance, I absolutely would have believed you. So was, was this out of the ordinary for Carly Lloyd or is this always how she's performed when she's played centre-forward? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the last, that key point is the last one is, is um, I think we saw, look, 2015 was, was the huge sort of moment for her. Obviously she's had the Olympic moments, but um, that, that 2015 world cup, the hat trick in the final, the, you know, that midfield goal um, that was just the beginning of shifting her essentially into a forward role. Um, and we saw that at the tail end of that world cup and that continued for a little bit. And then, uh, obviously, sort of this team and Jill Ellis hit reset after the 2016 Olympics, and that's where the system changed. It changed to one that didn't necessarily suit her as well, um, and also, you know, one where um, it, Alex Morgan as the nine with both the ability to turn in behind and check down uh, became the sort of preferred option. And so I, I think, you know, this is a continuation of that sort of peaking Carly Lloyd that we saw in that we saw in 2015, where um, she's sort of free of heavy defensive responsibilities that you'd expect from even a, maybe an attacking center mid or, yeah. or anybody in the midfield. Um, so, and, and I think we, I don't want to say we lost two years of it, but, but we haven't seen it in a while to your point. And should we, should we 38 at the Olympics? But honestly, based on what I saw last night, I, I don't think it's even worth thinking about her age because I don't really see her slowing down. No, I mean, look, fitness is a, a staple of hers, as she said, um, you know, many of times. I think she's told us, you know, in, in the media um, throughout these past few months that she's as fit as ever. I, I think she ended the, the NWSL season incredibly strong with Sky Blue. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think, you know, like in a vacuum, you'd look and say, OK, she's going to be 38. Like she's had to have lost some speed in that. And, and obviously she's going to say, you know, I'm as fit as ever. But um 
you know, I've, I've come to learn through many years of covering Carly Lloyd that she's being legit, that, um, you know, she, she is very fit. I, I think that's something that will never be a question for her as long as she's playing just the way she kind of, she works and, and, uh, you know, what her fitness level is. And then um, speaking of Alex Morgan, um, I think baby's due in April, you said. Olympics mm-hmm. are in the what, late summer, usually, sort of late July, early August. Um, what is it, based on your experience with players um, coming back to soccer after giving birth, is that a realistic time frame? Look, I think it's really tough to say. I mean, I'm not I'm not the greatest expert, I guess, but um, you know, on the, on the particular of it. But like, I think the the best way to look at it is, um, I mean, Alex Morgan said this week, you know, publicly and and on the record that she plans to be back, and she, you know, Tokyo is part of her plans. Um, I think it's you know it's possible, but really difficult is probably the best way to put it. And right. and I don't think anybody's really going to know um, until I. I we haven't, you know, she said April 2020. We don't know if that, I mean, that could be April 1st, could be April 30th. And, and right. when you've got sort of three, two, two to three months to play with, that's a, you know, a big difference as well. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, after she's, you know, hopefully given birth to a healthy baby, um, you know, then it's a matter of her kind of assessing where she's at. And, and it's going to be, you know, the timeline is, is really tight. I don't think it's impossible, but I think the where it becomes kind of, uh, an even more interesting thing to watch is an 18 player roster for the Olympics yeah. rather than a 23 where every single roster spot counts. And we, you know, it's a very different situation, but we saw in 2016 when Jill Ellis took the risk on a, I don't know what you want to call her, a 60% maybe uh, Megan Rapino, and, and that really backfired. Yeah, I um, So I think you look at it. Yeah. You look at an 18 player roster. I mean, you need to be really sure that, all 18 can essentially be a 90 minute player for you. Here's a tough question for you. Um, given, okay, it's only an 18 player roster. Which player do you see who didn't make the world cup roster who has a chance to make this smaller Olympic roster? You know, I actually don't think it's as, as all that tough. I, I think Casey short is uh, kind of the obvious one. I mean, she's been in, she's really been with the team for three, four years now. And, you know, last one cut essentially from the world cup roster, uh, you know, back to the the point of questions of fullback. He started at fullback, you know, against Sweden here in Andonovsky's uh, first game. And I think he'll look to her as, um, you know, at least one of his starting fullbacks. And, and that'll depend, obviously, on how much he kind of moves around some others. But um, I think, I mean, I, I'm not going to call her a lock because I would have thought that she would have been in France, frankly. And, and that kind of took a, a a turn sort of at the last minute there when, when that roster got named. But um, I think I, I can I'd pretty confidently say that she'd be on that Olympic roster, even despite missing France. what do you make of her performance last night? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I thought again, you know, that, that sort of four or five minute blip where uh, they just kind of shut off. And certainly that second goal where um, I, I thought it was, you know, it was a disappointing mistake if you're the U.S. because it really didn't need to happen and it really came from nothing. It was just a miscommunication. But I thought the 75 minutes before that um, defensively were really sound. Uh, I thought that, you know, Abby Dahlkemper, Becky Sauerbrunn at center back didn't have much to do. Fullbacks got forward nicely. You know, as we talked about here, played through the midfield quite a bit. Um, and Carly Lloyd, I mean, the, you know, we haven't even really mentioned her her second goal, which was like – ridiculous and audacious chip of, of Hedvig Lindahl. Um, so I thought overall a really sound performance. I mean, 3-0 after 31 was 
probably as good as you could ask for if you're uh you know first first game as oh, a manager just to just um, to, to clarify i was asking about casey short like what you thought of her performance oh my gosh night. i'm over here yeah. rambling um, <laughs> no worries but you gave us a nice um, uh, capsule review of the game there <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, Casey Short. Yeah, I think mostly similar, mostly a, a good game um, getting forward and and defending. I thought her and Emily saw it as well. Um, good on the flanks. But, um, you know, I, I think a solid performance and, and kind of one that we've come to expect from her. I mean, she drew the penalty too, getting forward. So yeah. um, I think an overall strong performance from her. And then uh, we've got Costa Rica coming up, I believe, uh, Sunday night. Um, are we expecting Vlatko to sort of do major rotation or will he put out a similar sort of lineup? Yeah, I and mean, that's a good question. I, I think I don't think there's a major rotation to be had just based on the, the lineup, or sorry, the, the sort of training camp roster that he has, some new players with a lot of regulars injured. I mean, I think he'll give some rest. I think, uh, you know, Julie Ertz, who has played nonstop this year, that was a planned substitution, he said, um, when, when she came out at halftime. So I think there's some rest to be had. Um, so maybe I think Andy Sullivan gets a start? Could be, yeah. I mean, look, she's she's earned it, I think, from the year she's had with the Washington Spirit. And, um, you know, it, it's worth getting a look at her uh, against, you know, to be fair, an opponent that um, will be decent but but not nearly at the level of Sweden where maybe you can, you know, take a few uh, – make a few sort of experiments with the lineup. And then any chance we get to see, say, uh, someone other than Carly Lloyd at centre forward, like maybe Lynn Williams at forward instead of on the wing, or maybe Jess McDonald gets to start centre forward, or is this just Carly Lloyd all the time now? <laughs> I don't think it's Carly Lloyd all the time, but I think as sort of the uh, the incumbent, and certainly after uh, you know a whole body of work for for her career and recently, obviously, but but you know especially Thursday, um, I think it's kind of her job to lose would would be the best way to put it. Uh, whether that means she's she's starting every single game, including you know sort of back-to-back friendlies like that against the Costa Rica. Um, we'll see. I mean, in terms of who else could be there, I think you could you could try Lynn Williams there, and I'd be interested to see her there. I, I talked to her on Wednesday, and she said they have been training her as a number nine and a number seven. So we obviously saw her in that wide role Thursday. Yeah. Um, would be interested to see her at center forward. And, you know, I, I'm also interested in that, in that position of what happens with Kristen Press. She's been very good out wide. I thought she was again on Thursday. And that uh, has been a, a real development of late in her career where she was not as much a wide player. But um, she's, you know, she came into the scene, onto the scene as a uh, – kind of a goal poaching number nine which is what this role looks like in the Andonovsky era so I'd be interested to see her in there and then a final question because I know we've got to get you out of here to get you on a flight um what what sort of what are the next steps towards the Olympics what what's up next for Vlatko well there's there's a December identification camp which will be none of the regulars essentially you know NWSL players who have uh, performed well this year. I'm not sure if college players, based on timing, um, and whoever else he identifies, you know, maybe from Europe. So, um, you know, I think that's a camp where he can get to look at a bunch of players that he's either coached or coached against in the league and see them against each other in an environment where they're essentially fighting for time. And, and maybe, you know, say there's 20, 25 people in that camp, um, maybe a couple of them come out of that with a legitimate shot at. Um, you know, uh, an invite to January camp. And um, I think that's, that'll be an interesting sort of window into how he sees kind of the the fringe areas of the roster. Uh, 
um, because I think you know the core of this roster to to a large degree, especially to that eighteen player roster size point. Um, I think the core of this roster is is fairly set, and we're looking at what are those sort of 15, 16 through 18, and then the alternates, really, those those four alternates, what are those going to look like? And I think that's where a December ID camp and, and then obviously Olympic qualifying in January where the, we just saw the draw, um, which, you know, shouldn't be any problem for, for the U.S., but uh, those are sort of the next steps and, and uh, obviously qualifying as, as they'll remind you that they still have to do. And then just planning out into the future, you said there's Olympic qualifying in January and I think early February, right? And then there's the Olympics in the summer. Is there a She Believes Cup scheduled for March? Do you know? Yes, there is a She Believes Cup that's coming back. I think it's it's in its usual uh, late February um, time frame into March. So um, that'll be a big one too, yeah, in terms of always – I haven't actually seen who the confirmed teams are if it's the same as last year, but um, always sort of top quality opponent versus, you know, respect to them. Um, Akanka Kaf Minow that they'll they'll get in, in qualifying. So um, I think that'll be an important one. And then whatever friendlies he does schedule um, to get ready – where uh, I think we've seen that in the past with you know with um, Jill Ellis, where uh, both World Cups the U.S. went to France and got mostly played off the park and used that game as kind of learning lesson, use those games as learning lessons. So um, you know a Sweden level, it's a good start, and then uh, we'll get some more sort of top ten quality teams with a she believes and and really see how the system works against those teams rather than a team that might bunker on them. All right, well, Jeff, thanks so much for your time this morning. Hopefully I've given you plenty of time left to uh, still pack that case, get on that flight. Um, if people yeah. want to hear more from you, uh, where, where can they find it? Where can they find all things The Equalizer? Yeah, all things Equalizer, uh, equalizersoccer.com. Um, we're, we're, all our social handles are equalizersoccer or equalizer underscore soccer. And then, uh, yeah, between Twitter with uh, our news and, and uh, subscribe to equalizersoccer.com, we get all our, our premium content. And uh, you get all your NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team uh, news and analysis. And worth noting, the premium content, very affordable, right? We're not talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars here. <laughs> no, uh, fifty nine a year, five fifty a month, and and we're frequently running uh, discounts. A champion code, put in champion at checkout, you get forty percent off your first year right now. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to think very affordable, less than that cup of coffee. <laughs> All right, I'll put a link in the show notes, and I'll remind people champion was the the discount code. Um, if people want to yep. sign up. All right, Jeff, thanks once again. Um, thanks for your time, and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Once again, that was Jeff Kasuf of the Equalizer. Today's show is not sponsored by The Equalizer, though I do recommend reading and subscribing because I'm a big fan of high-quality, independent soccer media, especially when it's US-based. Today's show is sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. If you've been thinking about showing your support for the US Women's National Team, then click yourself over to roughneckscarves.com and have a peruse of the Women's National Team section. There's the new four-star scarf representing, obviously, the four World Cup trophies. Um, There's the scarf that simply reads USWNT in high-definition red, white, and blue knit. Yes, there's such a thing as high-definition knit. And there are plenty of player-specific scarves, including a Carly Lloyd number 10 scarf, which it looks like is going to stay fashionable for a while longer than we all predicted. Probably good through the end of summer 2020, at least, it seems. All these scarves are priced 29 95 
or are they? Because if you enter the discount code Total Soccer Show, all one word, you'll get 20% off. That's Total Soccer Show, all one word, for 20% off. And if my math is correct, then 20% off of 29.95 means you'll be paying 80% of the original price. The URL is roughneckscarves.com. The link is in the show notes and your neck is just waiting for that warm roughnecky goodness. Up next, it's Bobby Warshaw. You all know Bobby by now, right? Former MLS player, now with MLSsoccer.com, a regular on the Extra Time broadcast slash podcast, and a familiar voice here on the Total Soccer Show. Bobby's in Seattle for MLS Cup, so I called him up to get a tactical preview of the game, and then to get his thoughts on the current state of the US men's national team. I've got Bobby Warshaw on the phone. He is up and about early in Seattle. Hello, Bobby. What's up, Daryl? Thanks for having me. You are getting ready for MLS Cup. I'm going to ask the big question first. Have you run into Brian Schmetzer yet while you're out there? Oh, wow. Uh, I have not yet, but I hope I do. I, you know, I hope I can, I can shake his hand and say congratulations. All right, because you, you kind of did. I heard um, the extra time after uh, Brian Schmetzer made the comments of, I'm, I'm sure Bobby, Bobby Walsh will tell me how I did it. Um, you did explain tactically how Seattle did it. And, it, you know, to my mind, it matched up with what I saw on the screen. You talked about Seattle playing sort of compact, but with a high line and kind of mm-hmm. defensive. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you put that to Brian Schmetzer. This is in the conference yeah. final, obviously. I don't think mm-hmm. he'd be able to argue otherwise, right? no. No, and you know, they, they had the, the game plan absolutely right against LSC. Um, even parts that I in my head had all, all year been thinking to myself, if I were to play this juggernaut that is LAFC, uh, how would I do it? And they pretty much did every component of it. My only point with, with Seattle is that in almost every other game over the last three years, they did not have that level of attention to detail, which is fine, right? Like maybe if you have Nico Ladero and Chad Marshall and Ozzy Alonso and Raul Diaz. You don't need to be strict in how you go about it. But in this one specific game, they had a very detailed plan and they did it absolutely perfectly. And yes, I will go ahead and acknowledge that I'm pretty sure uh, it's almost exactly what I told them to do before the game. But we'll leave that little detail out of it. <laughs> well, so MLS Cup is obviously a big game where you would put you know, lots of attention to detail. Mm-hmm. But the difference is Seattle are at home and might fancy themselves the superior team um, against Toronto in a way that they maybe wouldn't away to LAFC, right? So do you expect a similarly well thought out Mm -hmm. defense first game plan or do you expect the more sort of classic, let's go for it, Seattle? I absolutely do not expect the similarly well thought out defensive game plan. Um, For the reason you said, right, they're at home, they're going to be in front of 69,000 fans. I think to use your word, they fancy themselves as an attacking team, a team that wants to be on the ball. And ultimately, I think that the tactical nuance there is marginal and why it matters. The reason reason it matters to me is that as a player, it's really, really hard to shift your brain back and forth between being in a possession pass creative mode and a destroy mode. You know, there's very few players around the world at the highest levels who can do it well. Uh, And uh, Seattle have just been better in the second half of the year when they've been more of the destroyer team, more of the the, the against the ball, our back is against the wall club. Uh, So I expect them to come out as the attacking team. And yeah, it worries me. I'm not sure that that's what they're best suited to do at this point in the season. What is their attacking game plan? If you were to just kind of sum it up in a couple of sentences, what's the Seattle attacking game plan? 
So it's difficult to describe, right? Because I don't think it was something that they had planned to rehearse coming to the year. I think that the way Brian Schmetzer goes about it is he is very good with man managing and he, and he plays to the strength, the strengths of his players. Um, and that comes and it's manifested itself in wide overload, specifically down the left side of the field. Um, I don't know if that's because Brad Smith is a little better attacking a left back than Kelvin Laerdam at right back. I don't know, but I suspect it probably is because Nico Ladero is left-footed and likes to drift to the left side of the mm, field. Yeah. Um, so there's not, as far as I can ascertain, there's not a huge amount of detail in what they do, except that when they get the ball in settled possession, Nico Ladero drifts into the into the pocket or the half space on the left side of the field. Um, Ralph Rui Diaz shifts to that side. Brad Smith comes flying down as the overlap, and all of a sudden they've got a 3v2 or a 4v3, and they get to the end line much in the way Manchester City do. And I will say, when it's at its best, it is absolutely glorious. It hasn't been at its best much in the last year, you know, maybe the first five or six games, and then they kind of were just mediocre through the rest. But when they are really flying and they're getting those wide overloads or Jordan Morris is attacking with an outside-in run to go at goal, they are very fun to watch. And what do you think Toronto can do to counteract it? Because I, I remember a game earlier in this season. I can't remember if it was if it was at Toronto or at Seattle, where I remember mm-hmm. Michael Bradley playing like right side of the midfield diamond, and I think the plan was for him to you know be involved in combating that left side overload. And in the end, it still it still didn't work. So, and I know that you've been impressed with. I've heard you an extra time talking about how you're impressed with how Greg Vanny has. Um, adapted sort of game by game and adapted to not having Josie and not having Omar Mm. Gonzalez. Do you expect him to look at Seattle and say, all right, left side overload, Smith, Ladero, Morris, here's how I'm going to deal with it. Yes. So you have to, right? It's Toronto would have separated Toronto over the last, last four years. Cause remember, you know, people are new to this. This is the third year, third time in four years that these two teams have met in the final. And what really separated Toronto from the rest was a talent. You've got Jovinko, you've got Bradley, Josie, Victor Vazquez. Uh, that helps. But really, they had really defined principles of play. You know, their ability to stay compact 30 to 40 yards from attacking to defending, and their ability to move a defense side to side and break lines, their ability to bring a defense to one side and switch fields were these overarching general themes that they could do pretty much every game. What's interesting now in 2019 with Josie out, with Victor Vazquez gone, with Jovinko gone, with Pozuelo in, is that they're not a principles of play team. They still have them, right? They're still a team that can break lines, but this is more of like, let's have a specific game plan for this specific day and just figure out how to survive. And thankfully, most, most, like all but two MLS teams don't have their own principles of play, so they don't have solutions, right? For the most part, if you're talented and you disrupt another team's rhythm, they're in trouble in Major League Soccer. Uh, so that's all to say what's best for this team right now is for me is to do another game plan that's specific for the founders that just throws them off their game. What I think that Toronto will do because they have nothing to lose. They're on the road. They've already had this glorious run through the playoffs is that they come out in a regular four three, three, and they also try and be the team that is more attacking. So in that four, three, three, when I've seen them with no just may have only out the door, it's Pozuelo as a striker, but he kind of wanders around and comes deep. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that can be effective against Seattle? Because um, I was thinking, like, I heard you talk about the Seattle game plan against LAFC and how Carlos Vela being a player that likes to check rather than running behind mm-hmm. sort of played into Seattle's hands a little bit. So I'm wondering if there's mm-hmm. a danger that the Toronto game plan of having Pozuelo roam could play into Seattle's hands. 
Well, not not as much because what Toronto have done very well. And Daryl, how do you feel about the word false nine? Where are we with the false nine title? I mean, I I like it in that it describes a thing that a player does. I mean, it kind of describes what Pozuelo has been doing, right? And I, I would agree For that it's, sure. it's overused and maybe there are some people using it who don't really know what it means and it becomes like a bit of a hipstery slang term. But it's still a thing that exists. And I think Pozuelo is a good example of a player playing that role. I think he is too. I'm just kind of tired of people using that term. Okay. I'm being honest. It just feels overused. So I've, I've tried not to use it. But if we were, yes, Pozuelo is essentially doing this false nine role coming up as center backs. What's different about LAFC and Seattle is that LAFC kept their wingers wide. Again, you watch Manchester City, it's similar to what they do, where it's Sterling or Mares or Silva on the touchline looking to go 1v1. Um, the, prob- the difference is that Man City almost always put teams in a deep block, so there's no space behind. Seattle ran like a high line mid block, so there was space to run behind, but because Rossi and Brian Rodriguez were instructed to stay wide, they didn't hit it. Uh, what Toronto was with Pasuelo, uh, Endo, and Nicholas Benaze and Marky Delgado, the three players playing on Pasuelo, are all instructed to run behind, and they do well. They are all quick. They are all have huge lung capacity, so they do stretch the line very often. So, no, it's a different task for Seattle against Toronto than it is against LAFC. I'm also I'm interested in Toronto's midfield. I've just been generally impressed with the combo of Bradley, Osorio, and Delgado. There seems to be like a nice balance there. And I was also reading Mr. Weeby's column about Bradley is special and MLS fans should appreciate him. Um, and I know there's this, this 2020 $6.5 million contract on the line for Michael Bradley. Um, and if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about Michael Bradley for a second outside of a U.S. men's national team perspective, which is how we always end up talking about him, but just in a major league soccer perspective. Um, can we expect to go into MLS Cup and see Bradley essentially run the show in midfield? Oh, well, there, I'm going to I want you to answer that first. Do you have a do you have an opinion on it? Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it happen is, enough in Major League of- Soccer that I I can see Bradley running the midfield in MLS Cup, yeah. Um, man, I just have no idea how to describe this player now. I have no idea how to feel about him. Because I'm like, I've been a, a Michael Bradley supporter, defender for a yeah. while now. But man, like the last 18 months have been grim in Major League Soccer. And I do think that there's a reason, right? I do think he has a million miles on his legs. Um, the dude plays every game. He plays every training session. And as a professional, you have to love and respect that. Like, I know he gets a bad rap, but you could not ask for a more caring, uh, passionate professional than Michael Bradley. Has that maybe taken away from his energy levels on the field in the last 18 months? It seems like it. Um, and like, he is, point blank, he is, he is not an elite defensive midfielder in Major League Soccer now. No part of the last year and a half suggests he is an elite defender in this or elite defensive midfielder in this league. But am I going to bet against him bossing the single game, like getting every ounce of reserves of energy out of his body for this single game? And does he still have the, the ability on the ball and the passing and, and just like the, the, the intelligence? Yes. Um, so there, I honestly just have no idea. He still has it in him, I think, but like, I've been waiting for him to show this type of game on a regular basis for a year and a half, including against Canada, including including when he played for the U.S., and it just hasn't happened. I mean, is it as simple as saying if Toronto have a load of the ball and it's all about just Michael Bradley, you know, finding Pazuelo and, you know, maybe controlling the tempo of the game, then he can do it. But if it's Michael Bradley having to chase Nico Ladero around, um, his sort of 
defensive crouch and trying to play the angles is is not going to be enough. So it might just be as well, simple as with the ball good, without the ball bad. Well, my response to that is what's what's probably the single most important trait for a center midfielder in soccer right now. It might be defensive transition. Yeah. Right. It might be the ability to offensive mark, to take the foul, to track into the channel. Right. None of which he's doing particularly well at the moment. It really has done. Uh, he has, he has, that's actually not true. He did it well at phases in his career. <laughs> so I almost wonder if it's more dangerous for them to have a lot of the ball to send their outside back forward. And then all of a sudden, Jordan Morris is going to the channel where it's like Omar Gonzalez and Michael Bradley have to cover space. So I see what you're saying, and the, and the logic is, is right, but I, just, I add in that defensive transition part where every time Toronto have the ball, they're also at risk to a counter. It's been true all year, and I think it's probably going to be true in this game. So let's talk about Seattle's midfield for a second. I've quite enjoyed the sort of uh, two-man defensive midfield pairing of Svensson and Roldan. Um, and I'm, again, I'm thinking about Roldan in a men's national team perspective where maybe he ends up a little higher up the field and I feel like he struggles to um, influence the game as much. But I quite like him when I see him a little deeper uh, for Seattle. Would you agree with that? Because you've obviously seen more of Seattle than I have this season. So it's a weird... The way they set up is... I'm a big believer that like a 4-2-3-1 is very different than a 4-3-3. Yeah. And they describe it as a 4-2-3-1, but they play a 4-3-3. Like Christian Roldan gets into the box, he gets between the lines, he gets up and down, and Gustav, Sven- Gustav Svensson, the Swedish defensive midfielder, is very disciplined. And I would say the U.S. men's national team fans are listening to this but don't watch Major League Soccer, and who have decided that Christian Roldan is like a soft, weak, mediocre midfielder. Just don't watch him in, in league play, because he is the opposite. He is a damn warrior. And it is like watching him against him in some of the big games for Sounders, he looks just as up for the battle as anyone, any international player, any American player. And it's really hard to contextualize that difference between him with the Sounders as like this, this fighter ready for any big game and what we've seen with the national team. Do you have any, uh, do you have any theories on maybe why we, he doesn't seem to have that same um, like combative yeah. element when he plays for the men's national team? Yeah, I think it goes back to this main theme about Berhalter's I know everyone talks about possession. They talk about these different things and, and how and the team is soft and not winning balls in the field. And remember early in the show, I just talked about how it's hard to go back and forth between being a pastor in a moment and then a destroyer, right? It's, it's, it's the human brain doesn't go between angry and creative that quickly. And what Berhalter's doing, trying to be a passing team, trying to play in a passive middle block, it is just hard to really be a competitor in that. It is really hard to get your energy levels up and your intensity intensity levels. And I understand tactically why why Berhalter is doing it, but I also think he is just missing this human element where the tactics aren't nearly as important as the way it makes the players feel. Whereas the founders, going back to what we said earlier about, it's not incredibly detail-oriented. It's, it really is the players take the onus of it, and that allows Roldan to really show his full energy level. Does this go to a conversation we had way, way back about sort of flow state where you're not really thinking too hard, you're just sort of in the moment and reacting? Yeah, and and to me, that's something we don't talk about with tactics enough is just how it helps players get into that optimal performance state, right? If all players talk about, "I, I was in the zone or I was in flow state and that's when I was at our best, coaches should think more about how do we help them accomplish it? How do we help them turn off their brain so that they're, they're, they're playing on instinct? And then that's a bit more of the roll down we see in MLS then is a bit more closer to his flow state than the one for the national team. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk centre-backs. I feel like um, on, on both of these teams, the centre-backs, are, I guess it's true of MLS in general, right? The centre-backs are um, 
not the big stars and not talked about as much. I'm really interested in, for example, Seattle in the post-Chad Marshall era. It seems that uh, Kim Ki-hee has become kind of the, the key central defensive figure, but I can't say that I know all that much about him. So what's your take on Kim Ki-hee? Yeah, Kim Ki-hee is a good player. It's an interesting story. He was playing in the Super League in China. And then remember a couple of years ago, China changed their rules to get to decrease the number of foreign players? Yeah. You remember that? They had an exodus of pretty talented players. So we think to ourselves, if you get signed by China for that two, three, I think he was like on a $2 million deal in China. You're a decent player. I mean, they're talking about South Korean international. For a South Korean national team, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but because he had to leave China, like literally they just had to get rid of him as quickly as possible. Garth Lagerway, who was just, you know, the best GM in Major League Soccer probably, um, jumped on that. Um, and he, he got essentially a, a player who cost 2 to $3 million uh, in the world market for I think he's making 700000 in Major League Soccer. Uh, he is very calm on the ball. He is deceptively quick. He's just a good – like a lot of center backs, you can describe the one part of their game. He is just a good soccer player back there. All right, so Kim Kihee's worth keeping an eye on. And then for Toronto, every time I've seen them, um, Chris Mavinga has caught my eye with a lot of – Last ditch. In a good way or a bad way? In a good way in that there's a lot of last-ditch <laughs> poke tackles, but then in a bad way that he has to keep making last-ditch poke tackles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Chris Mavinga, and I would put him in, in the same category as Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, two guys who I think are probably the two most talented players. And I know that everyone loves Miles Robinson right now. Everyone in Nico Parra is fantastic. But you're talking a full range defending, athleticism, short passing, long passing, aerial ability. Mavinga's up there. And the same problem with Mavinga and Leandro Gonzalez-Perez from Atlanta is that, like, some games they just do uh, – you know who else is Francisco Calvo? Some games it's just like this person doesn't even want to be on the field right now. Okay. Uh, but when he wants to be there, he's fantastic. And I don't know if that, if that inconsistency is a part of his game. That's the reason he's in Major League Soccer and not in the Premier League. Um, or if it's just something about MLS and being abroad which makes him turn off. But yes, incredibly talented, maybe one of the top two or three most talented backs in the league. You just don't know what you're going to get on any given day. So if Omar Gonzalez is fit, which is possible, right? Because I think he's made the bench on his way back to fitness as a chance mm-hmm. he's fit for MLS Cup. Um, does Lawrence Simon miss out? Does Chris Mavinga miss out? Or did Toronto go back to the, the three centre-backs, back five kind of thing? So Omar was on the bench the last two games, actually. Both okay. NYC and Atlanta and didn't get back in, come back in. Let's go to the three center back. You talked about defending the wide overloads, um, protecting counterattacks. Just in terms of the logic of the tactic, the 5-3-2 makes the most sense to me. Um, but what I think that Greg Vanny will do is two parts, right? He will, one, say, we're playing with house money, we actually feel like the Sounders are just an okay, good, not great team right now, and we can play with them on the road. And B, this, 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 this overarching theme of teams wanting to just make a, a statement to themselves that they can play with anyone. That if you play a 4-3-3, it instills this thought in your players that we're out here to win, whereas if you play a 5-3-2, which is reactive, um, maybe it lowers your energy levels and it makes you a little, a little scared of what's to come. I suspect that they'll stay with the four three three, and honestly, whether they put Omar in for Simon, I have absolutely no idea. But you think either way, it'll be um, it'll be Mavinga keeps his place. Yes, and remember, like Lawrence Simon is really captain of LASB last year, and a moment when he was literally the last man left off Belgium's world team. Yeah. So 
he was he was good to you know mediocre to good in major league soccer. But going back to the Chris Mavinga and pure talent, I mean, Mara Simon was literally going to be the, the backup to Vertonghen and uh, Alderweireld at the World Cup. I, somebody ended up getting fitness at the last second. But Simon was, I believe, even in France at one point, or in wherever the World Cup was, like waiting with the team, and then he left because that person gained fitness. So just like that's a way to, to think about who this guy is as a player and what he can offer. Um, is there anything... Where was uh, the World Cup? Russia. Russia. It was definitely in Russia. Russia. <laughs> is there... <laughs> is there um, uh, it was the Women's World Cup was in France, right? Um, are there any tactical things I haven't asked you about that you think are really important in this game? Ooh. I, the only other thing I would look for is how Toronto defend and or press. Because for the most part, they've been a zonal team, right? Either in a 4-4-2 with the attacking midfielder, uh, with like two strikers up high and two two lines of four or a four four one one, but against NYCFC they they pressed high and man marked literally matched up all over the field. Um, same with early against Toronto or against Atlanta. I mean, remember the penalty kick that came against and the first goal were both because Lawrence Simon and Chris Mavinga followed somebody and Michael Bradley tracked the run through, which usually you would see a pass on there. So I'll just keep an eye on early in the game. Is Toronto playing their traditional zone or are they sticking with this more man-to-man aggressive defensive scheme? And that would be dangerous, right? Wouldn't that be dangerous without the pace of Morris over the top? And You know what I mean? That would be a, a, a risky proposition from TFC. Absolutely. I mean, it was risky. They got totally torched twice early against Atlanta. NYCFC took a while to figure it out. But again, if you're in one single game, the idea that you're playing that you're playing against something you haven't seen before, something that's unconventional, might have an advantage. But I don't know which way they'll go. Okay, well, I will keep an eye on that. Hey, it's Daryl here, interrupting myself to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Dollar Shave Club. Much like an episode of TSS, Dollar Shave Club put a lot of time, thought, and effort into making the best product possible. That's why their shaving products are genuinely high quality. And I am deadly serious because Mr. Taylor Rockwell wouldn't put any old stuff in his beard. He demands the best. But the Dollar Shave Club name may be a little misleading because these guys do way more than just shaving products. They actually have you covered head to toe with everything you need to shower, shave, style your hair, brush your teeth. You've heard us talk about the toothbrush and even wipe your butt. Basically, if you can do it in the bathroom, Dollar Shave Club has you covered. One product I'm particularly fond of is the Wanderer, the hydrating daily face cleanser made with citrus and Hawaiian ginger. No dryness, just freshness all over my face. You can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test for yourself. Their ultimate shave starter set has everything you need for an amazing shave. The executive razor, some shave butter, the prep scrub, you know I love the prep scrub, and the post-shave do. The best part is you can try it for just $5. After that, the restock box ships regular sized products at regular prices. Get your ultimate shave starter set for just $5 at dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS. Okay, I'm feeling all freshened up now, so let's get back to my conversation with Bobby Warshaw. If memory serves, we're about to pivot away from MLS Cup and talk some U.S. men's national team. Um, Bobby, before we before we started recording, I also warned you that I had a, a couple of U.S. men's national team questions for you, but you asked me um, you asked me not to give you any spoilers because you wanted to uh, you wanted to deal with it on the fly. Um, here's what I wanted to ask you: Are you ready? 
um, deep breath. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had lots of conversations, right? Um, and I, I think of you as someone who is very open to uh, doing things differently in soccer, if that makes sense. Like not just doing things the traditional way because that's the way it's always been done. Um, so I thought of you when there were all these quotes that came around about Greg Berhalter running the men's national team and trying to make it more like a club atmosphere. I think, I think it was Bruce Arena had said that he's trying to coach it like a club team. Um, and then obviously when he called up the 20 MLS players for the extended camp in this run-up to the Canada game, I see that as like trying to have more like a club type thing where you get a lot of time together before a game. So are you more positive than most people on the idea of Bearhalter sort of trying a new thing and trying to run a national team like it's a club team? Yes. Okay. So I've been, I've been saying since the beginning, not that, I, not that I would definitely do it, but it should be a conversation that it's like you pick your 20 players three years out from the World Cup and you just train them together. Because if we just oh, in the grand scheme of things, like how is the United States going to really, and I know this hurts people, right? But these are people who don't actually think about where U.S. in the world scheme of, of, of football. Uh, but like, how is the United States really going to make a World Cup final? It's truly going to be on our team. Are we really that close? Even in 2006, even in 2010, even with all the money the academy, like we're really that close breaking into the top eight or top ten teams on talent. And that's not about us, right? We, we might not have done anything wrong. It's just that 20 teams or 20 countries around the world have a 70-year head start in developing footballers. Yeah. And everyone else is trying to be good right. as well, right? What's that? Everybody else is trying to make the quarterfinals, semifinals as well. Correct. So like, if we're not going to do it on talent, then what are you going to do? And for me, this idea of having a cohesive, uh, detailed uh, team and game plan is a way to have a competitive advantage. And maybe you miss out on talent, right? If somebody breaks through, if Alex Mendez breaks through in two years in the Ajax, yeah, like maybe you miss out on having an Ajax player. Nobody wants, nobody really wants to have that. But if you're truly going to create a plan, because to me it seems in sports that we have this, we have this totally insane idea of like your team, we're a team going to play and may the best squad win. Right, as if like it's not completely obvious who the David is, who the Goliath is, and where David has his strengths, where Goliath has his strength, and how to make that work. Um, so yeah, Daryl, to make to, to sum this up, I'm perfectly fine with exploring this idea that let's just pick 20 players, let's have them like each other, let's have them build and, and a cohesive game plan, and use that as our competitive advantage. And then the obvious question is, how much time would you give that? Because I'm sure you'd agree it didn't look good in October away to mm -hmm. Canada. So are you like me thinking that the corner has to be turned pretty soon for us to, to stick with this? Or, or do you give even more leeway to, to Behel to try and trying out this idea? More leeway. Like I thought he was a fine hire, right? I don't know if it was the best hire, but I thought he was fine. I trust he's a smart guy with good instincts who thinks really deeply about these things. Um, and I just use the comparison of he is my, stock portfolio right i put my money in i know i'm going to take it out at age 65 and i'm not going to i'm not going to concern myself or, or freak out just because it goes down in the meantime and in the terms of this metaphor i'm taking my stock out in august of 2020 right that is world cup qualifying starts um and i trust i put my trust in him for a reason and i know that stocks and, and the team are going to go up and down and i'm not going to bail now um so when would I, when would I, there's no, I, I wouldn't change paths, right? If this is the path you're picking, processes and plans take time. 
I understand why other people might do it differently, but I would stick with it and I would, would keep my trust. What about the, um, it seems like there's been a negative reaction from people like Bruce Arena. He seemed to say it somewhat dismissively, like he's trying to coach it like a club team. Um, do you, yeah. do you think there might be too much of a, you know, tr- this is the way you traditionally run a national team and there might be too much resistance for Behalter to overcome? So my response to that is, like, it, it's completely legitimate for somebody like Bruce Arena or coaches to say that, and you should absolutely take that feedback. But Darrell, just we, we should always remember that at some point, like, zonal marking defensively was completely laughed at and frowned upon and mocked around the world, and it was a total battle to get zonal marking. The transitions didn't exist. Uh, the idea that an attacking midfielder had to defend was total blasphemy, right? But, and I horrible it works and if you legitimately believe that this is the right way to go about it somebody has to move the sport forward and like i said i'm not 100 positive that there's is right here like yeah you definitely shouldn't bail just because a five-year-old thinks that it's a bad idea does that make sense <laughs> it is but i think you you basically said okay boomer in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, yeah, maybe. What, what about the um, what about the reaction from fans? It seems like a lot of fans have. Is, I mean, I see this on Twitter all the time. Anytime I tweet anything about the national team, I get a lot of negative responses about um, Bearhalter and the playing style, and we shouldn't be doing this. Um, do you worry that, like, even though maybe you have the patience for it, and maybe you're you again, you're someone who I think of as interested in new ideas and new ways of doing things? Um, could it be that U.S. soccer and Greg Bearhalter? run out of time with the U.S. fan base? Like, it, it comes back to the point, like, when do the stocks come to fruition, right? Where no, none of us are actually taking our stocks out of the market until World Cup qualifying. So he could literally lose every single game, and then if he, went, he beats Mexico, he beats Costa Rica, he beats Panama in World Cup in the hex next August and, and September, then it's all fine. So, like, he could literally lose all of their faith. They could all come out on Twitter every single day. And, but then if he wins the first four games, heck, it's fine, and he's going to be revered. So, um, so maybe well, now, I mean, now's yeah, the time I to think, buy stock. May, maybe. I'm, like, I'm not positive. Here's, here's my thing with the national team. All right, well, let's just do this, Daryl. Let's do it. Okay. Um, here's my thing with the national team, right? We, they, there's so much hindsight bias in sports where you can look at what's happened, and then you look back and you say, oh, I knew that would happen all the time. And one of the reasons I have Greg Berhalter is doing, because I can legitimately look myself up and say, I would probably have done every single thing that he's done. That if you gave me the keys to this team, I would have made a lot of the same decisions. Uh, because whatever, whatever was going on before wasn't exactly working. They're saying, how is this guy, why is he trying to build a possession on the back? I want to go back to their conversations and their tweets in 2009, because I sure as hell bet that they were screaming at the television screen that this team is, can't pass out of the back and that they long, <laughs> all they do is play and counter. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, yeah. So, like, I'm just a big... This team, American soccer, like, the players we develop, we need to be better at passing a soccer ball. We need to be better at controlling a soccer ball. Is it ideal for the U.S. men's national team and the head coach to be the one making that statement? Obviously not. But somebody had to make the damage. Somebody had to try and push through the wall. I would have done it if I were him, and I'm certainly not going to drag him through the mud for trying something that I would have tried. And everyone out there who is mad, like, I just ask, what would you have done? Like, take away hindsight. Take away the fact that it didn't work, or it hasn't worked so far. Like, what would you legitimately have tried to do if you started this team? Because if you're going to tell me that you would have sat and countered, you're lying. You are just lying. 
because um, everyone out there was pissed that we had done nothing but sat and countered, plus this general idea, potentially myth, that American soccer had become a more technical process. So anyway, Daryl, that's my like kind of two cents on, has it not worked? Yeah, clearly. Um, but like, I also would have failed too. So like, I will personally just take the L if it fails and act like I would have gotten right to begin with. And if we're thinking big picture, it seems to me that Ernie Stewart will take the L if it fails because it definitely seems like, at least in my head, um, he's a very Dutch-influenced um, soccer person. I imagine that this, the choice of Berhalter, the choice of Raphael Vicky, um, is a lot about the way that Ernie Stewart thinks the US should be playing soccer. So as long as he's general manager, I think this is the something like the style we'll be going with, right? So we could fire Berhalter, but I, I feel like Ernie Stewart would hire another coach who wants to play possession soccer. So, all right. First of all, I want to say the 17s. I thought, I thought that watching them in qualifying, I thought that Vicky or Wiki was incredible. Like, the fact that that team stumbled so dramatically was a total shock to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I would have bought every ounce of on, on Raphael Vicky. In terms of the fools, I think that the words possession are red herring, right? Okay. Because you can talk about like a team as if that they only do one thing. But remember, there's four, you know, depending on the way they see your game. I see the game that there's nine phases, right? There's nine distinct stages within a game. And and within that, you have to have essentially nine different teams and nine different game plans. So it's not about whether you're a possession team. Like every team should be a possession team if the, if the opponent has numbers behind the ball, right? It's not about being counterattacking a possession. It's about going fast when there's space to go fast. It's about being able to slow down and having ideas when you slow down. Um, part of that is, A, everyone, most of the teams the U.S. have played have had numbers behind the ball, so you've tried to possess or um, – but, like, it's not about the idea of position. It's the inability to get the other seven phases aligned with the team. Um, like, the passive middle block for me doesn't, it doesn't work with anybody. It sure as hell doesn't work with this team. Yeah, uh, I very much agree on that. I've idea, been worried about that for a while. It's not the, it's not the fact that Greg Berhalter is trying to get this team to pass. It's the fact that he hasn't properly aligned the other eight phases um, which like you can honestly say is a, is a bigger mistake or a bigger failing than, than just trying to get the team to pass. Um, but I just I, I I caution us to think only about possession when like it's not about the possession. For me, the possession is absolutely right, and it's also like minimal compared to the other the other parts of the game. So is it is it fair to say the one big thing you would change is that passive middle block, like that weird four four two shape that we defended? Yeah. Like, so the point of the passive middle block is a restrictive not a restrictive, like a, a protective game plan. Yeah. It is probably the best shape at limiting good opportunities from the opponent, right? Um, problem is that like you don't you don't wreak any havoc. You don't make them uncomfortable. You don't create transition moments. Even when you do create transition moments, you're not in great spots to create your trans- attacking a, tr- a transition patterns to take advantage of the space. Uh, and right now, the problem with this team is like he's trying to pass. I get it. It's smart. It's good but you clearly don't have the players for it. So while you conduct this process of being able to use possession to create goal-scoring opportunities, which is a work in progress and, and isn't creating goal-scoring opportunities for you, you need your defensive game plan to carry some of that weight to help you score goals, which is the problem with the passive middle block selection. All right, Bobby, I think I think we should end it there. I feel like that's uh, given us lots of food for thought, but I, I fear that I could take up your whole day if I keep asking you U.S. men's national team questions. And I, I could do it. I could do it. And what I'll say is I think it's just important to acknowledge with everyone in this conversation that like we're all fallible. Nobody really knows. And I think the part that makes me mad is when I open up Twitter, I listen to people's shows, they act like they know. They act like they have it right. And the truth is 
I guess that's the truth is that like there, there's no right decision with this team. At least we can have the conversation in an interesting, honest, and intellectual way opposed to just pretending like it's still Jurgen Klinsmann who isn't even putting two cents of thought into it. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm, I would prefer, just for, like, for the Total Soccer Show, I'd prefer for us not to be like, this doesn't work, but how to out. Because then there's no there's no conversation about like what he's trying to do and which parts of it are working and, and aren't working. So I much prefer the ongoing conversation about the, the various ups and downs rather than the, the thing that I see from a lot of people, which is just, I'm out on this, like I'm never watching the US again. For sure, for sure. And I, listen, maybe I'm a little forgiving to Burhalter, but like the dude is the dude is smart. The dude thinks deeply, and I think I've just been craving that person in charge of the national team for ten years now, right? Since Bob left, and that doesn't mean that Bruce and Jurgen might not be good coaches and they're you know great coaches in some ways. But like I did this, I just think we needed somebody to thought more deeply, and that could seep into the ecosystem. Um, so that is probably why I give Greg a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I, we should also, in ourselves, take that precedent and like, talk, think about it, opposed to just getting angry. So changing culture as well as a playing style. Yes, and like a culture that hopefully seeps into the rest of the ecosystem. Oh, lovely. All right, to, to bring it full circle, um, is there any um, player or thing to look out for in the MLS Cup game that we started off this conversation talking about um, mm-hmm. that has, you know, um, importance for the men's national team? Like, is it Roldan's performance, Morris's performance, yeah. Bradley's defensive performance? What's the, what's the one men's national team thing that you'll be thinking about during MLS Cup? Ooh, that is a great question. I will go with... I think you have to stick with Jordan Morris, right? You have to stick with, is he legitimate star right because if you want in major league soccer he in the national team he's been a star recently so is he at that level or is he just a fine player with a bump in form the last few months so it'll be like is he the guy that can step up and win a trophy for his team well he did that ability but it comes back to the old question like is it form or is it quality um and i I still think that question on whether he is legitimately like has the quality of a star player or if he's just like find a good player who can put together a game or a month at a time that's very good all right on that note bobby that distinction makes sense it it absolutely does yeah um on that note i will uh i'll I'll let you go so you can go and um enjoy what there is to enjoy in seattle i hope this conversation was lively enough to give you a bit of a a nice equivalent of a cup of coffee in the morning it is. It always. I've always loved having these conversations with you. All right. Thanks, Bobby. I hope, I hope to see you soon. Hope to talk to you again soon. 